continuing our verse-by-verse study in John's Gospel. So we'll be in chapter 10. We covered the first 18 verses, and uh, now we'll be finishing the chapter this week. So uh, John's Gospel, chapter 10, invite somebody out as we continue to go through this wonderful, wonderful Gospel uh, of John. And then also in the evening is the Youth Hayride for middle schoolers and high schoolers. So parents, uh, the address is there in your bulletin. There's maps to the Banowitz. It's easy to find. Uh, just right off uh, County Road 49, the Kingsburg-Hudson Highway. Uh, as you turn off Highway 34 and go south uh, for four miles, you'll see County Road 50. Right on the corner there is the Banowitz house on the east side. And um, they'll have chili dinner, hot dogs, s'mores. Sounds great, doesn't it? And um, so if you want to bring something to share as well. So 5 to 8 o'clock. And, um, and if you haven't signed up, if you can do that, um, then they can plan for that, see how many hot dogs they need to get. So that's this Sunday uh, in the evening. And then ladies, 55 and over luncheon, ladies, if that applies to you, that'll be on Tuesday the 21st. You can sign up for that as well. I also want to remind you that out there in the foyer area, there's the Dare to Care Holiday Food Drive uh, that Jerry and Lola Clayton are involved in. And uh, they make food boxes. There's some information there. You can take a look at that. Lola's going to be talking more about that on Sunday. But go ahead and take a look at that. We want to be able to um, just bless people, especially during the time of the holidays that will be coming up. So take a look at that table out there. And everything else is there in your bulletin. Take a look at it. But, Father, we do desire to come tonight. And, Lord, we want to study your word. And the book of Job, we know, uh, most of us, what it's about. And it's about loss, it's about suffering, it's about difficulty. And we go through those things in our lives to some degree or, Lord, we know that uh, it will come to us. And sometimes when we experience uh, the losses and the difficulties and the tragedies, Lord, we want to know why. Or we look for answers. And Lord, even though as we go through this book and it's going to give us some insight to suffering and difficulty, Lord, we know that um, the lessons are there for us to apply, that you are sovereign. And even though Job, when, when all this is over, is not going to be told specifically why that God allowed these things to happen, but we know that you are working. And we know that you're faithful. And we know that you see and you hear And, Lord, you care about us. And, Lord, I pray that as we go through this book, that our hearts would be softened. Lord, our trust would build of you. And, Lord, our faith would grow. And, Father, I pray that we would be able to minister to others better that are going through difficulties and trials. So, Lord, we thank you so much that we have opportunity to study your word tonight. So, Uh, Open our ears spiritually, soften our hearts to be teachable. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. As you survey the Old Testament, uh, I think it's important for us to know um, that not only are we starting a new book tonight in the Old Testament, but we're actually starting a new section of the Old Testament, and that is the poetic books. 
And as you know, that the first five books of the Old Testament are called the books of Moses, right? The, the books of the law, the Pentateuch is what they are called. And that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And as we read those books, we know it tells us, of course, in the book of Genesis, the creation account that's given to us, how God created the heavens and the earth in literally six days. And we also see the first sin, and as a result of Adam and Eve, that sin in the garden there, that sin and death came into the world, but also we, we see the promised Messiah that would come. And as you travel through the book of Genesis, of course, in chapter 12, the promise is given to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant is made, that Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, that your descendants are going to be many, I'm going to give you this land, Who, whoever blesses you will be blessed, uh, whoever curses you will be cursed. And Abraham, of course, um, he believed God, and he would take his wife Sarah. They would travel from that area uh, that he was in of, of where the uh, Chaldeans were. He came over to Fertile Crescent into the land of uh, Canaan, and there he would pitch his tent. And we know that Abraham would eventually have a son, Isaac, and the covenant would pass from Abraham to Isaac, and then Isaac had a son, Jacob, and the covenant passed to Jacob, and then Jacob had 12 sons who would be the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. And we know that Genesis ends with uh, Joseph, one of the sons of, uh, Abraham, of uh, Jacob, that is, that would end up in Egypt, and because of famine, all of them, Jacob's family ended up in Egypt. And so we see that between Genesis and Exodus, there's actually from the time that Joseph dies to the time that, um, you know, Moses is born, it's a, a time gap of about 275 years. And then Moses comes on the scene, and, and Moses, when he's 40 years old, goes out uh, into the wilderness, and he's uh, escaping the wrath of Pharaoh because he had killed this Egyptian. And when he was 80 years old, then he would be called by God to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt because they were in bondage. So 400 years they were in Egypt, and we know that as Moses would bring the children of Israel out into the wilderness in orderly ranks, they came to the mountain of God. And then the Mosaic covenant was given to the children of Israel as the law was given to Moses there on Mount Sinai, and the Lord would give them the civil laws and the ceremonial laws, and they would be ready as a nation to go to the promised land. And we also know that the Mosaic Covenant was that if you follow after me and keep my commandments, my statutes, and believe in me, then I'm going to bless you. But if not, then if you turn away from me and turn to those false gods, what's going to happen is, is famine's going to come and defeat from your enemy, and you're going to end up going off into captivity. So the rest of those books of Moses talks about their disobedience out in the wilderness and 40 years wandering and making laps around Mount Sinai. And then finally, we start another section of the Old Testament, which are called the historical books. And that's the time from Joshua to Esther that we just finished last week. And the historical books tells us of the history of God's people when they entered into the promised land led by Joshua and Joshua, of course, um, that generation under Joshua would take the promised land. They would divide up the land. Each of the 12 tribes would uh, have their allotment that was given to them. And, and we see that it was a time of great victory. But by the time you get to the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua is telling the people, listen, you need to choose this day whom you're going to serve. 
As for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. Amen? And I pray that that is the heart and the mindset of every single one of us that are parents and every single one of us that follow up after the Lord, that I am going to serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we're going to please the Lord. So what happened that generation after Joshua, as you go into the book of Judges, is for 450 years, according to Paul, from the book of Acts, when he was given uh, a testimony of the people of Israel uh, there in the synagogue, he said that period lasted 450 years. And the book of Judges is opposite of Joshua in that there was a lot of defeat. Uh, they would rebel against the Lord. They would turn to false gods. They would find themselves the bondage to the Canaanites or the Moabites or the Midianites or the Philistines. Somehow they would find themselves, you know, in that bondage, and then they would cry out to the Lord, and the Lord would raise up a judge, a deliverer, to deliver them. And that was a cycle that went for 450 years. And the theme of the book of Judges is they did what was right in their own eyes. Now, does that sound familiar today? In our nation and in our society, we are a nation now that's wanting to do what is right in their own eyes. People, individuals. And we see that there's a dismissal of the true and the living God and how he desires for us to live in his truth and his, his commandments that are given to us. So that's the book of Judges. And, and as you continue through those historical books, finally, finally, they would give up their idols and then they ask for a king as you move into 1 Samuel. And of course, Saul was the first king of Israel. He was head and shoulders above everyone else. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, but then he was disobedient to the Lord. And so it would be Samuel, that prophet that came to Saul and said, the kingdom's taken to you is, is going to be given to another. And that is a man after God's own heart. And that was David. So David would reign for 40 years, and then Solomon would reign, his son, for 40 years. And during those 80 years, the nation was prosperous. They defeated their enemies all around them. Solomon built the temple. It was a time of great prosperity and wealth and peace and gladness in the land. And that's a fairly short time when you compare it to the rest of the, rest of the history that they you know, were in the land. I mean, for so much of their history, they were rebelling against the Lord. In that short 80 years, things were good, and God was blessing because he kept his promise that I'll bless you if you believe in me and follow after my ways. Well, shortly after the reign of Solomon, well, Solomon would die, and his son Rehoboam, there was a split in the nation. The ten northern nations called the House of Israel, and then the southern nation called the House of Judah. And the House of Israel was a mess. As you recall, if you were with us as we went through First Kings and Second Kings, uh, the House of Israel had 19 kings, and every single one of those kings were idol worshipers. It went from bad to worse, and finally, they would go off into captivity, even though the prophet came along uh, during that time and said, turn back to the Lord. It was the time when Elijah was ministering. Uh, he's the one that called down fire from Mount Carmel, you know, on Mount Carmel from heaven. And it was Elijah that would come along and minister, but they continued to rebel. So the Assyrians would come down, flexing their muscles. The Assyrians were terrible, as we discussed. They were brutal. They came and they put fish hooks in the mouths of the people. And they drug them off into captivity. And then they came in, some of them, as some of the people were left, and they intermarried with the, the Jews, and, and they brought in more paganism. And their offsprings, over time, they were called the Samaritans that we've discussed in John's Gospel that Jesus loved and went and ministered 
to uh, the Samaritan woman and to the village there of Samaria. So we see that taking place at that time. Well, the southern kingdom was doing a little bit better, weren't they? And we saw that even though that they were doing a little bit better, there was still Manasseh that came along and some of the other kings that plunged them into disobedience and idol worship. So they would go off into captivity beginning in 605 B.C. by the Babylonians. And so that was during that time uh, from David all the way for uh, 400 years, we see that it was a very difficult time for the God's people and for the house of Israel and for the house of Judah. Well, the last three books of the historical books we studied uh, this summer, didn't we? In Ezra, Nehemiah, and then we just finished Esther. And those books takes place after the Babylonian captivity is over, after they begin to come back into the land. So that was the historical books. And, and I just want to emphasize that it's good for you guys to have that background of the historical books because it's going to help you understand, first of all, the poetic books that now we enter into that section of the Old Testament. The poetic books include the book of, of Job that we're going to start tonight, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And as we go through those books, we're going to see the time period in which those psalms were written mostly by David and during that time of, of David's reign or, or during the time of Solomon, uh, but not all of them. And we can understand why David was writing that psalm as we compare it to the stories uh, that are written to us in the books of, that are the historical books. Um, we are going to gain from that. And then the last section of the Old Testament is the books of the prophets. You have the major prophets, which is Isaiah, and then you have you know, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Those are their major prophets. And then the minor prophets, uh, Hosea through Malachi. And, and when you understand the time period that they were prophesying, as you compare it to the historical books, you're going to have great understanding of the Old Testament so it's really beneficial to go through the Old Testament the way that we are, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, to get a good understanding of the Old Testament. And it also helps us to understand the New Testament even better. So I commend all you guys coming out, so many coming out on Wednesday nights in the middle of the week studying the Old Testament. And it's going to greatly increase your knowledge of the Bible and of Scripture, and you're going to be blessed as we go through these books. And so, um, you know, that's a survey of the, the Old Testament, 39 books of the Old Testament. Now, to understand biblical poetry, it's not like poetry that we generally, or maybe I'll speak for myself, I generally think of, because I'm not very sophisticated in literature. I think poetry, it's got a rhyme or it's not a poem, right? So, um, and we know that's not poetry. Poetry can uh, be much more sophisticated than and just rhymes. But Hebrew poetry comes basically in two forms. One is contrasting thoughts. And that is when two thoughts are, are uh, contrasting. And for example, in Psalm 31, verse 17, it reads that the arm of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. You see the contrasting thoughts of the wicked and the righteous. And there's a lot of that when you particularly go through the book of Proverbs. 
when you go through the book of Proverbs, it's rapid fire of these uh, sayings, wisdom, godly wisdom versus worldly wisdom. Uh, there's a contrasting thoughts of, of, you know, wise versus fools and workers that uh, work hard, the benefit of that versus the one that is a slopper. So you've got all these contrasting thoughts, particularly in the book of Proverbs. So that's the first poetic uh, form that you see in the poetic books. But the second form of po uh, Hebrew poetry is parallel thought. And that is when two thoughts are, are, or the thoughts are building upon each other. For example, in Psalm 100, verse 5, For the Lord is good, His mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generation. So you see that there's one thought building upon another thought. You go from goodness to mercy to truth. So that's the two basic forms of Hebrew poetry that we will see as we go through these books of Job and, and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. Now, getting to the book of Job. The book of Job, the, the date, the author, the place are all uh, uncertain. But most scholars believe that Job very well could be the oldest book of the Bible. We know that Moses, who lived about, you know, um, you know um, in uh, about 1500 B.C., that he wrote Genesis and the first five books. Job was uh, around during the time, it is believed, of the patriarchs, that is, of Abraham. Matter of fact, some scholars believe that Genesis chapter 10, verse 29, there may be a reference to Job that he actually was there in the land of, of Uz, not Oz, but Uz, and he was there before even Abraham. And we know that Lamentations chapter 4, verse 2 tells us that the land of Uz is that area um, that is of the Edomites. Uh, the Edomites coming much later. Uh, the Edomites, a descendant, of course, of Esau, who was the brother to Jacob. But that is south and east of the Dead Sea. So Job is probably during the time of Abraham, maybe even a little bit before Abraham. So that's early in history. Now, most of you know the story of Job, that it deals with suffering and great loss. He loses everything. He loses his wealth. He loses his family, with the exception of his wife. He suffers physically. I mean, he goes through tremendous, tremendous loss. And in studying Job, we go through this book, and we're going to see that the question of why Job would go through this is not going to be answered specifically. But there are some very important things that we are going to learn from Job as we travel through this, and we see this discussion that is between God and Satan that will start out tonight, and then the discussion between Job and his friends that are counseling him, giving him advice. And then at the end, we're going to see that God's going to give an answer. But in this book, we're going to see very, very clearly that God is sovereign. And I know that as we go through tragedy and as we go through loss, we want to know why. We want to know why, Lord, why is this happening? And I think that Job is going to help us to understand that God is sovereign and he's also good, that he is in control. And we're not going to understand everything on this side of eternity, why specifically God allows some things to happen, but we can trust in him. 
and we can continue in our love of him and rest in that love. And we know that God is good and he's merciful and he's full of compassion. And as we go through this book, there are two main things that I pray that takes place that, first of all, as we make application that is going to help us to grow in our faith of the Lord, is going to help us to be patient in trials. You know, James would write about in his epistle in chapter 5, verse 11, that you've heard of the patience of Job. That is the perseverance of Job. And we're going to see that he persevered through this tremendous loss and difficulty. And you've heard of his patience, perseverance, and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. And my prayer is this, that when we get to the end of this book, that as we close the book of Job, that you will be able to say in your heart that the Lord is very compassionate and he's very merciful towards you and whatever situation that you may be going through that's difficult. I think that we in this room, we know that we will all go through trials. And I'll speak for myself. I like it when I can understand things. I like to be able to plan and to have things go my way. And if things don't go my way, if, if things, you know, come into my life that, you know, a trial or a difficulty, I can become anxious very, very easily. Uh, I become to get uh, discouraged. I, I, I begin to ask why. I think that's a natural thing. Lord, why is this happening? And, and I can get my focus off of the Lord. And I know that the Lord is teaching me through every trial to persevere. And I know that he's teaching me patience, which produces maturity, as James would say in chapter 1 of his epistle. Matter of fact, we will read in Job chapter 23 that Job says that when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. And that's one of the things that we need to understand that in the times of loss and difficulties that all of us will go through in life because Jesus promised that we would. He said that you will have tribulation. Not that you might have tribulation. You will have tribulation, but be a good cheer for I've overcome the world. He said it rains on the just as well as the unjust. And we live in a fallen world. We live in a world where there's sickness and disease and, and there's you know, sadness that happens, and we don't understand why we go through certain things, but we can know this, that God wants to use it to grow us in patience and maturity and to refine us, to grow us in our faith. And that's what we're going to see as we go through the book of Job, that that refining process is going to happen to him, and Job's going to be blessed as we come to the end of the book. You know, the refining process is not easy, is it? I think one of the fallacies of what is so popular in the church today, in the prosperity movement, in the health wealth movement, and all of this, and, and is gaining a lot of steam. And it seems like it's uh, great motivational speakers that you've just got to speak you know, faith and words of faith, and you just got to believe, and you're going to get that promotion, and you're going to be healed of that cancer, and this is your year, and, and you just got to believe. Yes, faith is very important, and God does heal, and He does bless, and Lord wants to work, but what happens if the Lord chooses not to give you that promotion? What if He chooses not to heal? God is still worthy to be worshiped, and it is in those times that we can still be refined to where our 
faith is growing, and that's what he wants. He wants to refine us. He wants to do a work in us. In a refining process, you know how the goldsmith or the silversmith heats up the metal, and, and all the impurities will burn up, or the impurities will come to the top, the, the dross, and the silversmith, the goldsmith, will scrape it off and, until that gold, that silver is refined. And it's not an easy process. But it's a process that the Lord desires to do with you and me because he has an eternal perspective. And we need to always remember that the Lord is working for our good. And whatever is burnt up in that process, it's not worth having. It's not worth having. So to be patient in trials, to grow in faith, and then second of all, what I pray as we go through this book, is that we'll be able to help others that are going through trials. Sometimes, you know, when things are going really good in life, when we hear of a trial or a loss that somebody's going through, we can be maybe a little bit indifferent. We can, you know, be a little bit callous in, in their hurt and, and um, what they're going through. But when we've been through trials, when we've gone through a loss, when you've experienced a loss of somebody that you love or maybe a business failure or difficulty at work or difficulty with your children or a loved one, you've been through that thing, you have compassion and you can sympathize more with somebody who has gone through a similar thing. And I know that we all our trials are different, but we can go through those similar things and we can say, hey, I, I feel your heart and I have compassion. And to be able to help and give words of encouragement to those who need it and to feel their pain in a greater or more sensitive way at least. So these are the things that I pray that we learn as we go through the book of Job. Let's begin to look at it in verse 1. As we read, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. So introduced to Job, again, from the land of Uz. And as I mentioned to you, probably the oldest book of the Bible. And um, perhaps it was before even Abraham was on the scene. But notice here Job, the description of his character is given to us. First of all, he's blameless and upright. It might be translated in some of your Bibles that he was perfect. Now, we know it doesn't mean that he was perfect in the sense that he was sinless. Of course, Job had sin. Every man and woman that has ever existed from Adam to the present has sinned with the exception of Jesus. He's the only one that lived a perfect life. But what it's saying here is that um, he was one that had godly integrity. Those in the Bible that were uh, characterized as blameless and upright, like Joseph and like Daniel, they were ones that you couldn't look at their life and, and um, you know, easily see that there's shortcomings and hypocrisy and sin and, and immorality and shortcomings in their lives. It's like Joseph, as we mentioned last week, was a young man who just displayed godly character and devotion to the Lord. And same with Daniel, who determined in his heart not to defile himself. And Job was that way. I want to be more that way. I know that First Timothy chapter 3 tells me that as a shepherd, as an overseer, as an elder, that I'm to be blameless. And I read that, and it's so convicting. 
that I'm to be blameless. In other words, to have godly integrity. And I don't want anybody to look at some area of my life and, and s- them to say, hey, they obviously got sin and carnality and hypocrisy in their life. And all of us should have that desire to where, Lord, I do want to be upright. I want to be blameless. I, I want to be a light to people. We should never, never have the mindset and heart of how carnal can I be and still be a Christian? But rather, Lord, how can I live a life pleasing to you and truly be a light to others and a blessing to others? So Job was that kind of man, and also he feared God and he shunned evil. Now, I think that those two things go together. He was obedient to God, and if we are going to shun evil then there first needs to be a fear of God. And we talked about this quite specifically this sum, last summer as we were going through the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was one that he was blameless. He was upright. He had such godly character and integrity and honesty because he feared God and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He wanted to please the Lord in the decisions that he made and how he served the Lord and, and how he ministered to the people. And he would shun evil. And that's what you and I are to do. We're to fear God. We don't hear a lot about fearing the Lord today in the church. And because it's not popular and it's kind of a downer. And, you know, um, the fear of the Lord is a very important truth that is given to us in the scripture. The beginning of the wisdom is what? Is the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is having a reverence of the Lord. And we worship a holy God, an awesome God, and a God who desires for us to live in that holiness and to understand that the Lord is aware of every thought and every action and every word that we speak, all our behavior. He's there and he sees. And I want to have that reverence of the Lord and be in in that awareness constantly that he sees me and he knows what I'm thinking and he knows what I'm watching and he knows what I'm saying and what I'm involved in. And I want to walk in the fear of the Lord. And I want to shun evil. So that was the kind of man that Job was, as his character is given. This is according to God. Now keep that in mind as we go through the book of Job, because what we're going to see as we continue in the weeks ahead, that his friends are going to come along and say, Job, you, you are not blameless. You're not upright. You're not fearing God. And that's why you've gone through the losses that you've gone through. So keep that in the back of your mind that this is according to God, saying that he is blameless and upright and and has the fear of God and shun evil. We continue in verse 2, and seven sons and three daughters were born to him. And also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. So Job had a big family, had a lot of sheep, cattle, oxen, and donkeys. And those were terms of how wealthy he was. He was the greatest of all the people of the east. Now, this is important. I don't think that the scripture here is telling us that he was great because he had great wealth. But rather, he was great because he was blameless and upright. And he feared God, and he had godly integrity. And as we travel through this book, it gives us insight of the good steward that Job was of his wealth. We're going to see that Job, he rescued the needy. We're going to see that he cared for those who were afflicted. 
He cared for orphans. He helped protect the underprivileged. And these are the things that made him great in the eyes of God. It wasn't just his wealth. You see, again, there are those who think that, that you know, greatness is, is having things. And if God blesses you because every good thing comes from above, whether it's good health or possessions that you have, talents, uh, intellect that you have, but whatever God has given to you, that you and I are to be good stewards of it and to use it for His glory. And that's what makes us great in the eyes of the Lord. And to, to really trust in the Lord uh, in, in, in trusting the things that we have to further the kingdom of God and to, to be pleasing in His eyes. So that's what made Job great. It wasn't that he had stuff. It was because he loved God. Remember that it was Jesus that told that parable of the one who was, you know, going to build bigger barns so I can store more wheat and more of my goods. And then the Lord said, you fool this night that it's going to be required of you, your soul. And you see, the tragedy wasn't that, you know, that he was prosperous in the grain that he had. The tragedy was is that he wasn't rich towards the Lord. He wasn't rich towards the Lord. And you see, what we do for Christ and what we do for the kingdom of God, that's what's going to last. And that's why it's so important that we keep that eternal perspective on things. Again, I believe the great tragedy of the prosperity movement is, you know, to get your eyes on the temporal things. And you know what? If, you know, to be uh, one that is, you know, to gain godliness is to have more. And, and to ask and claim for more and have stuff. And that, you know, appeals to our flesh. But it's not spiritual. And again, it's not, you know, um, it, it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. And so we need to be careful. It's not a sin to be wealthy. It's not a sin to have things. But what is our heart towards the Lord and how are we good stewards of the things that God has entrusted to us? And that's what made Job great. He was wealthy, but he rescued the needy, the afflicted, the orphans. He protected those who were not, you know, underprivileged. And that made him great in the eyes of God. In verse 4, and his sons would go and feast in their houses each on his appointed day and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would sin and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Now, some read these verses, verses 4 and 5, and automatically think that his children love to party, that they are in you know, constant rebellion against God as they would feast in their, their house. And um, it's, this is before the feasts were given, of course, as you read in the book of, of um, you know, uh, Exodus and Leviticus and, and the feasts that uh, they were to celebrate uh, and uh, the major feasts that are given. And then later on, as we know that they would celebrate the Feast of Perm, as we saw in Esther. Uh, this Sunday, matter of fact, we're going to read about how they celebrate the Feast of Lights we're going to see it's winter time, and Jesus is in Jerusalem during that time. As we will look at the text here in John chapter 10, the Feast of Lights, they celebrate even today, they call Hanukkah. 
So we're going to talk about how that all came. So this is all before the feasts were, were given to Moses and, and to God's people. So the feast here, scholars believe that, um, that it, it was the, you know, celebrating birthday parties or, um, you know, that's what they would do. And they would have a feast uh, for the kids and, and they were doing this. And I think that it's worth uh, mentioning that Job offers special sacrifices after each feast had run its course. Now, it doesn't necessarily prove that they were doing all kinds of wicked things. But I think that it speaks more of Job, of the godly man that he was. He wanted to make sure that his family was right with God. And he didn't take that lightly. And for him, after these feasts were over, for him to expend the energy and to take the time to offer a burnt offering for each one of his kids really took a lot of time and a lot of effort to take that animal and to offer it as a burnt offering. Job cared about his family. And he loved his family to where he says, I, I want to do this lest there is sin. It may be that my son sinned and cursed God in their hearts, but he did this regularly. This was a priority in his life. So mom and dads, what about us? What about us? Do we give a, 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 some time, sacrifice some times to present our kids to the Lord? Do we pray with them? Do we read scripture to them? Do we present them before the Lord? Because how we need to do that, because what we're going to see here is Satan is going to come on the scene here in just a little bit, and he's a destroyer, and he's a murderer, and a deceiver, and a liar, and he's going to come after you, and if he can't get at you in certain areas, he's going to come after your kids as well, and he's going to come after your family, and he's going to come after this church family because he hates us. But here's the thing. It's so important in this day in which we're living in, mom and dads and grandparents, that we are praying for our children. And we cannot just say, well, I hope they stay out of trouble. I hope they do okay. I hope they don't fall into temptation. We've got to do more than just hope. We've got to sacrifice some time and be lifting them up to the Lord and talking to them about the things of the Lord and praying with them and for them. And we cannot afford, particularly dads, to say, well, I'm busy. And I'm so tired when I come home. I get up early. I don't have time to do that. We must make it a priority. Job was busy. He was the greatest man in the East. It means that he had a prominent position. And he took care of people and he had ministry. But he made it a priority and he did it regularly to sacrifice a burnt offering for each one of his kids after these feasts because he cared about them and he wanted them to be right with God. And we need to sacrifice time and do that, spending with their children, our grandchildren, or whoever you have opportunity to minister to in your family and be praying for them and praying with them. Even when they're little, be praying for when they grow up if the Lord tarries for their future spouse, that they'll become the man and woman of God, you know, that, that the Lord desires for them to be, for them to walk with the Lord and learn of the Lord. Be always praying for your children and make it a priority. But we cannot afford to say, I don't have time. 
or it's not important. Or I'm just going to take them to church once in a while and I'll let the you know, youth people do that or Pastor Jeff do that and take care of those things. That's a privilege and opportunity that we as parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, that we have to be able to sacrifice some time and really pray for our kids and present them before the Lord. So that's Job, this godly man, and who I don't know if we're going to finish chapter 1 here. Let's try. Verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. In verse 8, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, blameless and upright, uh, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. In verse 12, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on the, his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Interesting heavenly scene, isn't it here? We get a glimpse of the spiritual realm. Now here's the thing to remember, that the spiritual realm is real. The spiritual realm is, is real. We don't see it, that dimension, but it's around us. It was Elijah, remember he told his servant he, he prayed lord open up his eyes as they were in the house and the syrian you know army had come and and the servant came in and he was upset and elijah prayed open up his eyes and he opened up his eyes where he saw the spiritual dimension he saw uh, angels and fiery chariots all around them as elijah said greater are those that are with us than the syrian army that is out there but he got a glimpse of that i just wonder if that was opened up to us just for you know a few seconds what we would see how crazy it would be but the spiritual realm is real now the world comes along today says you christians you talk about demons and you know angels and things like that we know that angels are real aren't they we know that hebrews says don't forget to entertain strangers so some have entertained angels unknowingly so maybe perhaps sometime when you help somebody out or entertain somebody that you know maybe it was an angel you know you, you don't know probably wasn't but um <laughs> you don't maybe the person sitting next to you you know maybe an angel probably not but <laughs> 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 guys if it's your wife it's an angel okay <laughs> but angels are real you know they are very real we read about them all throughout the scriptures and it's interesting that in eternity that we are going to be judging angels is what paul says and i find that very fascinating he talks about to the corinthian church he says you guys you know what you need to settle matters in the church because don't you know you're going to be judging angels so when we rule and reign with Christ, you know, I have a feeling that as we're ruling over five cities, ten cities, that we're going to be saying, hey, you angel, kind of, you know, bossing them around a little bit. That's going to be kind of cool, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know exactly what that means, but I have speculation. I have an imagination. I like to think about these things. So, hey, you, go, you know, make a run to get something, you know. That's going to be so cool, you know. <laughs> but 
angels are real and also fallen angels. And the demonic realm is very, very real. And Satan is very, very real. And we need to understand that. That is a spiritual battle that is out there. And Satan is out to destroy. And he is out to divide. And he's out to deceive. He's out to get into our lives at our children, and we're going to see that as we continue. We're not going to finish chapter 1 here tonight. And Satan is out to be a destroyer. He is very powerful. Now, don't think that Satan is the opposite equal of God, because he's not. He's created being that was uh, Lucifer. We know that Ezekiel talks about that, um, gives us indication that he was a worship leader. He was full of beauty and per perfection and sweet music would come forth from him. And somehow Lucifer, this one that was created of God, became full of pride and he wanted to be worshipped as Isaiah writes and sit on the throne of God, be worshipped as God. And that's something that Satan has always wanted, to be worshipped. And so Jesus said to the disciples in Luke's gospel that I saw Satan fall like lightning to the earth. So don't think that there is this, you know, big battle, you know, between God and Satan, and he's almost the opposite equal of God, and God kind of got the you know, upper hand. God just spoke, and Jesus said, I saw him fall like lightning to the earth. So he's not the opposite equal. He's a creative being. He doesn't live in hell. Most people picture him as, you know, trying to rule the world from hell, you know. There in hell at his desk, and Peter's up in heaven at the pearly gates. You know, that's the picture, sadly, that a lot of people have. He's not in hell. We know that the final resting place of Satan is going to be the lake of fire, and those who have rejected Jesus Christ, and he will be cast into the lake of fire, as we read in Revelation chapter 20. So after the millennium reign, that he's going to be cast into that final place, the lake of fire. But in the meantime, the scripture tells us that Satan, that he is the God little g of this world, and he's the prince of the power of the air. And he is powerful. And he is one that is going to come against you and this church in any way that he can. And I just want us to be aware of that as we finish up here tonight that our battle isn't with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. Will you remember that, okay? Because he's going to do everything that he can to bring friction and difficulties and temptation or whatever he can as you're growing in the Lord, as you're growing in God's Word. And one of the blessings that, that is <clears throat> for me as pastoring this church is to see and hear you guys growing in the Word of God and your love for Jesus Christ and desiring to live for the Lord and do what's right with your family and your desire to know Him more and to just serve Him. And as you do, the enemy is going to come against you. And that's why it's very, very important that we put on the whole armor of God, that we're not ignorant of Satan's devices, and that we submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That is the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. And know that he's been stripped of his authority over us. As Colossians chapter 2 declares to you and to me. But you don't go into his territory. 
because he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he wants to pounce on you, and he wants to rip you apart. He wants to rip this church apart. And that's why prayer is so very important. And knowing God's word and staying close to the Lord in the safety of the Lord. And we see here that Satan, that he is real in this conversation has with the Lord, and we're going to pick it up, but I want to leave you with this, and then we're going to go to prayer. That is, God that says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And you might want to underline that here in verse 8, because that word consider is a military term. It's God saying, have you considered Job? And what was the um, answer of Satan? He said, yes. I've considered him. I've studied him. I've studied him like a general would study the enemy to see how he could defeat him. And know this, that he considers you. And he studies you. And he's looking for a way to get a foothold into your life to bring division, destruction, despair, defeat, death. He's studying you. And if there is anything in your life that is in compromise, that you're messing around with sin or carnality, or you're fooling around with that which can bring hurt, he's going to take it and blow the doors wide open on it. So as we go to prayer tonight, know this, that Satan, he studies you. And he will use those things to try to get a foothold and be effective in bringing you down. Now, in this story, as we pick it up next week, we're going to see that God has a hedge of protection around Job, and he's going to allow Satan to get at Job, and we'll look at that. But here's the thing. We are so grateful that we have the Lord who is our protector, our strong tower, our shield. But don't go into the enemy of the territory. If there is any compromise, sin, rebellion right now, don't allow the enemy to take it as he considers you and to be able to get into your life to where he's going to bring devastating consequences and difficulty and despair and defeat into your life, all right? Because it's real. The spiritual realm is real, and the battle is real. Put on the whole armor of God. And know that he's going to come after you day after day after day. He's not going to quit. Here's the thing. Satan doesn't say, hmm, you know, I think I'll give Pastor Jeff a break today. You know, the McDonald mentality, he deserves a break today. No, he isn't that way. It's like, hmm, how can I get... How can I get at Pastor Jeff? How can I get at his marriage? How can I get at his kids? How can I get at Calvary Chapel? I believe the enemy wants to destroy this church. You know why? Because God is doing such an incredible work in this church. People are coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, getting saved. The word of God is going out. The radio program that's filling the airwaves along the front range of Colorado. People are serving the Lord. They're growing in the Lord. 
They're excited. He hates this church. And he wants to stop it. And we need to be praying for ourselves and for our families and for this church family. So, Father, we do that right now. We know that the enemy is a destroyer, and he's real. And, Lord, we know that he desires to come against our families, our marriages, our children, this church. Lord, we thank you that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And, Lord, that we can trust in you. And, Lord, I just pray that we would realize that our battle isn't with flesh and blood. It's not with one another, but with principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. And, Father, what my prayer is, is that you would help us to just abide in you and stay close to you and keep under the shadows of your wings to stay in your high tower. You are a refuge. And to not go into the enemy's territory because we know he studies us. So may we stay close to you. Father, I pray that you would just protect everybody's family here. The mom and dads and grandparents, uncles and aunts that we would pray for our children, that we would follow the example of Job who sacrificed burnt offerings for his children because he wanted them to be right with God. And he was the priest of the family and he was one that knew the importance of the priority of presenting his kids before the Lord. That we would do that, Lord, and take the time and expend the energy to get up early in the morning to pray for our families to pray for our church family to make it a priority to pray over them and with them to go into their rooms and and pray in their rooms lord and to present them before you to pray that they will grow to be godly men and women to marry godly spouses, to, to honor you with their lives and to serve you and to walk with you all the days of their lives, to keep them safe from the temptations and the deception of the enemy in the world because there's so much deception. It's getting dark. We see it all around us daily. Our society is calling uh, evil good and good evil. There's so much darkness that is out there and it's getting darker. And Lord, we want to make sure that we bring the light, the light of the truth, the light of God to them and present them before your throne through our prayers. Lord, I pray for this church family that, Lord, that as you're growing us in our love for each other that Satan wants to divide, And how we can just forget how the enemy schemes and he considers and he frustrates. And Lord, we want to be humbled before you to love one another. 
to have compassion and understanding. Father, I do pray tonight if there's anyone here in the sanctuary or out in the coffee shop or listening on live stream, maybe you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you're not right with God. Maybe you don't know what would happen to you if your life was the end tonight or tomorrow or this week if you would go to heaven. And I want to give you the truth of the gospel that we have all sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. And the only hope of salvation, eternal life, comes through Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came to this world and went to a cross and died for you. He died for you because he went as a substitution for you. He died for you and in place of you. And all the judgment of death and the consequences of sin was put upon him. He died for you. And the one who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. And the free gift of salvation is available for you as you come in faith and believe that Jesus died for your sins and to repent turn direction and surrender your life to Jesus and believe that he rose from the grave. He's alive. We believe in a risen Savior. He conquered sin and death. No one else died for you. There was no other sacrifice for sin, only Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, you're not saved because you listen to a Bible study or you belong to a church or you think you're a good person. You're saved because Jesus died for you. And he says, whoever believes in me shall not perish but have everlasting life. Open up your heart to Jesus. And he'll forgive you of your sins no matter what you've done. And you pray, Jesus, I come. I, I pray with my heart. And I open my heart to you. And I confess that I am a sinner. And Jesus... I believe you died for me, and thank you. Forgive me. And I believe you rose again, and that you're alive, and I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior and sit on the throne of my heart. I surrender completely to you, and thank you for dying for me, and help me to live for you all the days of my life. And if anyone prayed that prayer, if you're on live stream, will you call me this week and tell me the decision you made? Or if you're here, will you come up and receive prayer and tell me the decision you made? But Lord, as we go home now, keep us safe. Keep us close to you. And Lord, may we live in a way where we desire to fear you, to shun evil, and the Lord to please you with our lives. Bless everyone here as we go our way. We look forward to coming together on Sunday as we worship you once again and just learn of you. So thank you for tonight. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said amen. Would you please stand?